The following audio play is dedicated to the memory of Spencer Prokop. Good evening. I'm Ken Rainey, your announcer, and welcome to the Dallas Public Library and to this performance of the Texas Radio Theater Company. This production is brought to you in cooperation with the Arlington Museum of Art, challenging visitors to think creatively, and especially with support from you. Tonight we present Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Final Problem, adapted by Julie Barrett. Part one follows right after this. This portion of the Texas Radio Theater Company is brought to you by the Victorian Era. Have you properly thanked the Victorian Era lately? It was the height of the Industrial Revolution and the apex of the British Empire. It was the beginning of... Recorded sound. Mary had a little lamp. Globalization. Ooh, Chinese tea from India served on an Egyptian tray, smashing... Whoops! Incandescent lights. Brilliant! Mass transit and British railway food. I say, this sandwich is 160 years old. See, they made things last back then, didn't they? Darwinism. Well, I'll be a monkey's uncle. Media sensationalised serial killing. Dear me, I don't know what this world is coming to. Hello, I'm Jack the Ripper. Ah! <laughs> and photography? Snap, snap, green, green, wink, wink, say no more. Remember, the many mechanical, industrial and generally spiffing things we take for granted got their start in the Victorian era. And we just want to say thanks. Thank you, Victorian era. And now, Sherlock Holmes and the Final Problem, presented by the Texas Radio Theatre Company. And so ends the sad tale of the tragedy at Burlstone Manor. John, dear, I thought you'd gone to bed. I can't sleep, Mary. I thought I might go over some case notes. You have a story due for the Strand next week. I know. There were some points in the case that refer to the story. You saw the letter in the Times. Indeed, I did. That affair must be most distressing for you. I know it is for me. Of course, it would be. If it weren't for Sherlock Holmes... <laughs> You do know how much your support has meant to both of us. You tell me every day, darling. Now, come to bed. As soon as I write up this next passage, I promise. Don't be too long. All right. Now, where's that notebook? Ah, well, perhaps I'd better go to bed and work on this when my head is clear. No, it won't do. It won't do. Oh, that blasted letter in the Times. It is with a heavy heart that I take up my pen to write the last words in which I shall ever record my friend, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. It had been my intention to stop with the tale of his interference in the matter of the naval treaty and to have said nothing of the event which has created a void in my life which the lapse of two years has done little to fill. My hand has been forced, however, by the recent letters in which Colonel James Moriarty defends the memory of his brother. I have no choice, therefore, but to lay the facts before the public exactly as they occurred. I alone know the absolute truth of the matter, and it lies for me to tell for the first time what really took place between Moriarty 
and Sherlock Holmes. Since my marriage and my subsequent start in private practice, Holmes and I had seen less of each other. He still came to me when he desired a companion in his investigations, but these occasions grew more and more seldom. One of our last such cases met with rather unexpected results. And now, gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? We have, my lord. Mr. John Douglas, please stand. Are you quite all right, Mrs. Douglas? Yes, thank you, Dr. Watson. I assure you, you have nothing to fear. What say you? In the matter of the Crown versus John Douglas, on the charge that on or about the night of January 7th, 1891, he did willfully commit murder, we find the defendant acted in self-defence. I will have silence. John Douglas, jury of your peers has found that you acted in self-defence. The detailed notes that you had kept of your time as a Pinkerton agent in the United States, in addition to your complete cooperation with Scotland Yard, have fully acquitted you of this heinous charge. You leave the court a free man. Mrs. Douglas, you must get him out of England at any cost. But he's free. He's been cleared. There are forces here which may be more dangerous than those he has escaped. There is no safety for your husband in England. Do you see any other way? The attempt on your husband's life was engineered by one who will surely not stop at one attempt. We have little to fear from the American gang now. No. I speak of the one they hired to ensure your husband's demise. But why would he continue to pursue my husband? It's over! Not for him. I implore you, if you love your husband, you will get him out of England. And quickly. Holmes, are you serious? Deadly serious. Watson... I fear no good will come of this in the end. Mr. Holmes. Yes, Inspector MacDonald? I overheard what you said to Mrs. Douglas. Can you help? There's a train leaving for Dover tonight. I'll do my best to make sure they're on it and on the first available boat away from England. I can't force them, you understand. While your powers of persuasion are formidable, I believe those of Mrs. Douglas will be even more so. (laughs) Aye. Watson, would you be so good as to drop by Baker Street after your rounds? I have a matter I wish to discuss. I promise I will have you home to your wife for supper. Certainly. No need to knock, Watson. Come in. How did you know it was me? I'm expecting no one else. Do sit down. A drink. Mm, Thank you. Is this concerning the last case, the Burlstone Manor affair? Is that what you're calling it? I'm afraid affair sounds optimistic. Holmes, um, pardon me for saying this, but you haven't seemed yourself lately. Are you well? I am preoccupied, Watson. Hmm. I commend your attention to the paper on the table next to you. Yes, it uh, looks like good quality paper. Read it. Oh, a short message. All it says is, dear me, Mr. Holmes, dear me, no signature. That's quite enigmatic. Indeed. I fear it does not bode well for Mr. John Douglas. Mm, But he should be safely away by now, shouldn't he? Away? Yes. Hmm. 
I called you over to tell you that I shall be out of the country for some time, assisting the French government on a matter of supreme importance. Oh, congratulations are in order. Now, this case, I fear, is connected to a web of crime. Enter. I have bad news. I feared as much. You've received a cable as well. I've had a note from someone who has. It is from poor Mrs. Douglas. It says, Jack, lost overboard on Channel Crossing. No one knows how. Ivy Douglas. Hmm. It came like that, did it? It did, Mr. Holmes. I've no doubt that it was well stage-managed. There is a master hand here. Aye, it seems so. And I'm sad to say you were right. But the case was dismissed. Douglas was released. Putting myself in the position of a man hired to do him harm, I suppose I would have forgotten about it. Chalked it up to a bit of bad luck. As would most men, Watson. Mm, sounds like a particularly stubborn villain, if you ask me. Not stubborn, Watson. Hmm. The man behind it cannot afford to fail. One whose whole unique position depends upon the fact that all he does must succeed. What's his name? Who is he? I have my suspicions, Inspector. But it would serve no purpose to tell you now, other than to make his capture even more unlikely. That's not very comforting, Mr. Holmes. Do you think he can be beaten? I don't say that he cannot be beat. Certainly not by traditional methods. But you must give me time. You must give me time. Mrs. Hudson, I shall be leaving for France tonight. Tonight? I'll leave it to you then. Good luck to you, man. Well, should you need any assistance, I stand ready. I must take care of the matter in France alone. Oh. I may be several months, but I shall not stay out of contact. Flower for you, Colonel. No, thank you. Are you sure? It might be just a sink for someone just back from France. How careless of me! I'm more careless for you! Careless, how so? You should have shot me without warning. I promise to do better next time. Do come out from behind that barrel, Mr. Holmes. I have some lovely lilies picked up for you. You're not a very convincing flower girl, you know. German? I'm Bavarian. But I fooled you enough, didn't I? Third attempt in my life today. Come out, Mr. Holmes. Hey, where did you go? Right here. <coughs> Not a moment to lose. Yes? Holmes, you look terrible. If this is how you greet your patients, I'm surprised you're still in practice. Well, you look as though you haven't eaten or slept for days. Yes. I have been using myself up rather too freely. I've been a little pressed of late. Have you any objection to my closing your shutters? No, if you must. But please, sit down. Can I get I'd, you... I'd rather you didn't. Or must you creep around the edge of the room like that? You're afraid of something? Well, I am. Of what? Of these. Oh, what on earth? An air gun. Oh. A fiendish weapon. Noiseless. 
deadly. I was lucky enough to take it from a German woman posing as a flower girl before she could use it against me. Oh, that's unbelievable. Might I trouble you for a match? A match? Of course. Here. Thank you. I must apologize for calling so late, and I must further beg you to be so unconventional as to allow me to leave your house presently by scrambling over your back garden wall. But how on earth did you split those knuckles? Let me take a look. There's nothing no, to I do No, I insist. It. Let me clean that. It's nothing, you see? Nothing. Of course. Of course. Take my handkerchief, at least. Is Mrs. Watson in? She's away upon a visit. Indeed. Hmm. Then that makes it easier for me to propose that you come away with me for a week to the continent. Where? Oh, anywhere. Doesn't matter. It's all the same to me. Holmes, this is most unlike you. Have you heard of Professor Moriarty? Never. Yeah. There's the genius and wonder of the thing. The man pervades London and no one has heard of him. That's what puts him on a pinnacle in the records of crime. Well, surely the police... No one. Hmm. I tell you, Watson, in all seriousness, that if I could beat that man, if I could free society of him, I should feel that my own career had reached the summit, and I should be prepared to turn to some more placid line in life. <laughs> you retire? It's not impossible. <laughs> Recent cases have been quite rewarding. Mm -hmm. But I could not rest, Watson, if I thought such a man as Professor Moriarty were walking the streets of London unchallenged. Well, what has he done, then? Well, outwardly, his career has been an extraordinary one. An unrivaled mathematician. A university chair. A celebrated career was before him. And those outward appearances were deceiving, then? A criminal strain ran through his blood, Watson. Hmm. Instead of being modified, it was increased and rendered infinitely more dangerous by his extraordinary mental powers. Dark rumours gathered around him, and eventually he was compelled to resign his chair and return to London, where he set up as an army coach. Well, the name still means nothing to me. As it does to the rest of the world. But I alone have discovered him to be the Napoleon of crime, Watson. He is the organiser of half that is evil and nearly all that is undetected in this great city. The Napoleon of crime? No, surely you exaggerate. No uh, one knows the higher criminal mind of London so well as I do. He is a genius, a philosopher, an abstract thinker. He has the brain of the first order. He sits motionless like a spider in the centre of its web. That web has a thousand radiations, and he knows well every quiver of each of them. It was those quivers that alerted me to his presence. Oh, the, the tragedy at Burstone Manor. Very perceptive, Watson. Well. <laughs> yes, that was one such thread, which led, after a thousand cunning windings, to ex-professor Moriarty. But Scotland Yard would be quite happy to make his arrest. If it were that simple. He only plans, you see... His agents are numerous and splendidly organized. If there's a crime to be done, the word is passed to the professor and the matter is organized and carried out. Well, the agent may be caught, but the central power is never so much as suspected. Oh, but I know you well enough, Holmes. You have found the evidence. Yes. Hmm. It has taken me three months. And even at the end of that time, I am forced to confess that I had at last met an antagonist who was my intellectual equal... 
Might I trouble you for a glass of water? Oh, certainly. Hmm. Your equal, you say? Here you are. And, um, do have some biscuits. If I'm keeping you from your dinner, Watson... Oh, nonsense. You are on the verge of collapse, and you need some nourishment. Very well. Believe me when I tell you, Watson, that my horror at Moriarty's crimes was not lost in my admiration at his skill. I kept at the trail. I have woven my net around him until now it is ready to close. In three days, matters will be ripe, and the professor, with all the principal members of his gang, and the answers to over 40 mysteries will be in the hands of the police. Then we shall soon be witness to one of the greatest trials of the century. No, Watson. We haven't reached the finale yet. If we move at all prematurely, they may slip out of our hands even at the last moment. Moriarty's web, as you said. Yes. Mm. He saw every step which I took, but I anticipated his actions. No wonder you look in such a state. Again and again he strove to break away, but as often I headed him off. I tell you, my friend, never have I risen to such a height. And never have I been so hard-pressed by an opponent. My word. Well, I shall look forward to hearing all the details. Well, there may not be the time. We must be on our guard. He cuts deep, and yet I have just undercut him. This morning, as the last steps were taken, I was sitting in my room when the door opened and Professor Moriarty stood over me. Mr. Holmes. Professor Moriarty. You are not surprised? I would like to say that I expected you, but on this rare occasion, I must admit, I did not think you would show your face. I confess that I am also caught off guard. How so? You have slightly less frontal development than I should have expected. Your appearance is quite familiar to me. Is it? It is a dangerous habit to finger loaded firearms in the pocket of one's own dressing gown. You evidently don't know me. On the contrary, I think it is fairly evident that I do. Pray, take a chair. I can spare you five minutes, if you have anything to say. All that I have to say has already crossed your mind. Then my answer has crossed yours. You stand fast. Absolutely. (sighs) Then it comes to this. Uh, Put your weapon away. I merely reach for my memorandum book. Now. You crossed my path on the 4th of January. Ah, yes. The most singular tragedy at Burlstone Manor and Mr. Douglas's subsequent drowning. On the 23rd, you incommoded me. By the middle of February, I was seriously inconvenienced by you. No doubt you would have realized a tidy sum from the sale of La Giaconda. Who was your buyer? Or was it to hang in your study next to the Groes? In either case, she would have been quite the prize. At the end of March, I was absolutely hampered in my plans. And now, at the close of April, I find myself placed in such a position through your continual persecution that I am in positive danger of losing my liberty. The situation is fast becoming an impossible one. Have you a suggestion to make? You must drop it, Mr. Holmes. You really must, you know. After Monday. (laughs) Tut, tut. I am quite sure that a man of your intelligence will see that there can be but one outcome to this affair. It is necessary that you should withdraw. Really? You have worked things in such a fashion that I only have one resource left. 
It has been an intellectual treat to me to see the way in which you have grappled with this affair, and I say unaffectedly that it would be a grief to me to be forced to take any extreme measure. <laughs> you smile, sir, but I assure you that it really would. Danger is part of my trade. This is not danger. It is inevitable destruction. You stand in the way not merely of an individual, but of a mighty organization, the full extent of which you, in all your cleverness, have been unable to realize. You must stand clear, Mr. Holmes, or be trodden underfoot. I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Well, well. It seems a pity, but I have done what I could. I know every move of your game. You can do nothing before Monday. It has been a duel between you and me, Mr. Holmes. You hope to place me in the dock. I tell you that I will never stand there. You hope to beat me. I tell you that you will never beat me. If you are clever enough to bring destruction upon me, rest assured that I shall do as much to you. You have paid me several compliments, Mr. Moriarty. Let me pay you one in return when I say that if I were assured of the former eventuality, I would, in the interests of the public, cheerfully accept the latter. I can promise you one, but not the other. That, Watson, was my singular interview with Professor Moriarty. I confess that it left an unpleasant effect on my mind. Uh, then you must take police precautions against him. Now! I thought you would say that, but the reason I don't is that I am well convinced that it is from his agents that the blow would fall. The assassin! The air-gun-wielding flower girl! Precisely, my dear Watson. <laughs> Professor Moriarty is not a man who lets the grass grow under his feet. She was only the third attempt that I know of. The police have her in custody, but I can tell you with the most absolute confidence that no possible connection will ever be traced between her and our retiring mathematical coach, who is, I dare say, working out problems upon a blackboard ten miles away. Well, these horrors you've experienced today certainly explain your behaviour when you first arrived. Indeed. And I must leave by some less conspicuous exit than the front door and get away for the few days which remain before the police are at liberty to act. It would therefore be a great pleasure to me if you could come onto the continent with me. Hmm. Oh, the practice is quiet, and I have an accommodating neighbour. I should be glad to come. Good. Then these are your instructions, and I beg, my dear Watson, that you will obey them to the letter. For you are now playing a double-handed game with me against the cleverest rogue and the most powerful syndicate of criminals in Europe. You may rely on me, Holmes. Then listen. You'll dispatch whatever luggage you intend to take by a trusty messenger unaddressed to Victoria tonight. In the morning, you will take a handsome cab. I'll arrange for one to call. No. Uh, oh. No, you really must do exactly what I say. You will leave the house alone tomorrow morning and not take the first or second coach which may present itself. Oh, very well, Holmes. Into the third handsome you will jump, 
handing the address to the cabman upon a scrap of paper with a request that he will not throw it away. Won't it just say Victoria Station? On the contrary. You will have him drive to the strand end of the lower arcade. I see. And then? Have your fare ready. And the instant that your cab stops, pay him and dash through the arcade, timing yourself to reach the other side at exactly a quarter past nine. A quarter past nine. Oh, my dear Holmes. Our lives depend upon it. (sighs) Of course. When you get there, you will find a small brum waiting close to the curb, driven by a fellow with a heavy black cloak tipped with red. Into this, you will step, and you will reach Victoria in time for the Continental Express. I'll do just as you say. Do stay the night, Holmes. We can go together in the morning. Impossible, my friend. Hmm. I have preparations of my own to make, and time grows short. Uh, Give me a hand onto the window ledge. Certainly. Until tomorrow, Watson. You're listening to the Texas Radio Theatre Company. You have been listening to part one of Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes and the Final Problem, adapted by Julie Barrett and directed by Richard Froelich. It was produced by the Texas Radio Theatre Company in cooperation with the Arlington Museum of Art and featured the voice talents of Robert Clover Brown, Margot Capel, David Grant, Sheila Kadam, Brian Lockett, Richard Miller, Spencer Prokop, and Ken Rainey. Live sound effects were performed by Ken Rainey. This audio play was performed and recorded in front of a studio audience in November 2007 at the Arlington Museum of Art, Grapevine Public Library, ICT Studio, and the Dallas Public Library.